so there, there's a story of an area that was under flood warning um, and there was a man there who, who had great faith in God and as, as the call came out to evacuate he said I'm praying to God God's faithful God will deliver me I'm not going to evacuate um, so he stayed put a little while the water was getting up to his porch and uh, somebody came by in a rowboat and said hey you know get in the boat we'll, we'll take you to safety he's no no I've prayed I've got faith God's God's gonna save me and the water rose and rose he had to go to his second story and was looking out the window and somebody came by in a motorboat and said you know come on we're, we're, we're here this is your last chance out jump in you know we'll take you to safety he's, oh no I've prayed God's gonna save me you know and so Water rose up, he climbed onto his roof and the helicopter came by and lowered a rope and said, you know, grab hold, we'll take you to safety. And said, nope, I've prayed, God's going to save me. And after a while, the, the house washed away and he was killed and um, came before the Lord. And, and he said, God, you know, what happened? I, I had faith, I prayed, I was trusting in you. And God said, I sent you an evacuation warning and a rowboat and a motorboat and a helicopter. What more do you want? You know, and... Um, just kind of a funny story, and, and I think you'll see how it ties into the sermon eventually. Um, you know, not exactly a, a, a Christmas uh, day after Christmas story, but anyway. Um, so we're, we're, we're finishing up our Advent series, which was looking at the people of the Bible. And, and we started out talking about the prophets, the people who foretold the coming of Christ. And, and they looked ahead, but they the pieces didn't quite fit. They saw this king coming, this mighty king who would, who would bring deliverance and, um, and raise Israel to, to, to greater prominence. But then there was this suffering servant and, and these stories about child. And, and you know, the New Testament writers said they didn't, they didn't know how it all fit. Um, then we, we talked about Mary and Joseph and just their humility and their faith and their quickness to obey God that really set them up to be able to be the parents of Jesus, um, to, to protect him, and, and that we need to cultivate that same sort of humility and, and quick obedience to, to God that, that really comes from trust in him. And then we talked about Zechariah and Elizabeth and how God was at work in, in the very darkest of times, you know, 400 years of silent of silence from God, this tyrant Herod on the throne under the, Rome, the thumb of Rome, and yet God was still at work there. And, and even though Zechariah expressed a lack of faith and, and was struck mute, God still accomplished his purposes. God still used him. Um, and so now today we want to finish up this series and we want to talk about what I call the, the visitors and the no-shows on Christmas Day. Um, you know, there, there were some people who, who made it to, to the stable or to the house afterwards, and there were others who, who didn't bother. And I want to talk about some of those. But to start, I want to talk, read um, from Matthew 13. And, and if you know your Bibles at all, you know that's not a Christmas passage. Um, but I think you'll see how it fits in with the story here. Um, Jesus said, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they didn't have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seed fell on good ground and produced grain, <coughs> some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty-fold. So again, it's kind of a, a strange story for to start for 
a sermon about shepherds and wise men and Herod and the religious leaders. But I think it can be argued that each one of those groups of people or characters represents a different kind of soil, a different responsiveness to God's word. They, they all received the word. They all undeniably received the message that the Messiah had come, that God's kingdom had invaded the world. But they responded to that message in different ways. Um, and, and it doesn't perfectly match the, the, the soil types. I don't want to stretch the analogy too far, but I think as we go through it, you'll see a lot of parallels there. So I sort of want to take this from in the reverse order that Jesus took. So to me, the wise men are good soil. Um, Matthew's the only one who writes about the wise men, and he introduces them like this. He said, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has born, been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So who are these guys, the wise men? I mean, we have these stories of there were three of them and they were kings and... None of that is supported scripturally. Um, w what we know is they probably weren't kings. They were probably wise men. They were probably scholars who worked in a king's court somewhere. Um, they were likely, because of that, fairly well-to-do. Um, they were, were honored members of the king's court, so they were given time to study and, and research things. And we speculate that they came from ancient Persia and that they had access to the, the Old Testament and specifically to the writings of Daniel because of that. And, and as I thought about what happened to these wise men, it actually fit very much with what we were talking about in Sunday school today of reflecting back at how God was at work through history. And we think about what did it take for those wise men to know that, a, that God's kingdom would invade then and, and what the signs were. And, and God was planning out details hundreds of years before he actually sent Jesus. If Israel had not been destroyed by the Babylonians, the wise men never would have come. Because it was that destruction and captivity of Israel that carried a teenager from a noble family into captivity. And that teenager was faithful, even though he suffered the consequences of the conquest. And frankly, even though he was physically castrated uh, without the benefit of anesthesia, because if you read the account in Daniel, the, the, the Babylonian official was put in charge of the eunuchs. Eunuchs is somebody who was castrated. So he was physically castrated. He suffered all these things, but he was faithful to the Lord. He continued to hold faithfully to God's word. And he had a lot of wisdom from the Lord. And because of his wisdom and his faithfulness in his job, his writings got stored in a library somewhere, including the Jewish scriptures, including his prophecy that these wise men then had access to. Because Daniel was faithful in the service of King Nebuchadnezzar, when Nebuchadnezzar had this dream and and couldn't interpret it and demanded that his wise men tell him what it was and what it meant. God gave Daniel the power to interpret that dream. And, and the dream was of this statue that had different metals in it um, that represented different kingdoms. And Daniel said, well, this is, the gold head was the kingdom of Babylon and then Persia and then Greece and then Rome. 
and then there was this stone that rolled down from the mountain and hit the statue and destroyed it and grew to be a mountain and, and Daniel said that's God's kingdom invading the world that's that's God's kingdom coming and because of that vision that God gave the king and because Daniel interpreted it, that was written down for the wise men to read about and say you know what this king this this heavenly king is going to come during the Roman Empire and so these guys were primed to be looking to, to be expecting that, that God's kingdom was going to invade and you know they, they were looking for a heavenly king and just they weren't looking for a new king of Israel I mean Israel was a gnat on the back of a camel if you will I mean it, it was this little insignificant piece of real estate they were under the thumb of Rome. There was a king there, but he was a puppet king. There was no reason for them to travel thousands of miles to see a new earthly king. No, they were expecting a heavenly king. And, and part of what clued them into that was Balak's, or, or, or Balaam's um, prophecy way back in Numbers, where he said, I see him but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So apparently they had access to that, and as a result, when they saw a new star, they knew that this heavenly king, that this one who was going to bring the kingdom of heaven to invade the world, that, that he had been born, and that he had been born in Israel. Now, you know, we... we well, I guess we don't have a big star over there, but when we think of the Christmas star, we think of this huge, you know, it's brighter than the moon, it's out there, everybody can see it. If that was the case, everybody would have seen it and everybody would have responded. My guess is, and I'm throwing out lots of speculation here this morning, but my guess is it was a fairly small star, but because the wise men studied the sky, they recognized it as a new one. You know, as, as one that wasn't on their charts and, and, and they knew, okay, that, that was the sign. Um, you know, you think there are people in the fields outside at night all the time in those days. The shepherds were out there. They were looking at the stars. They were making up, you know, stories and legends about it. That's where the zodiac comes from and, and all those things. So if this monster star suddenly appeared, everyone would have noticed it, right? But, but they didn't. The, the wise men saw it. And, and I don't think actually that the wise that the star went ahead of them guiding them to Jerusalem they knew from the prophecy that this was going to be in Israel they saw this new star and they started heading out which is why they ended up in Jerusalem rather than in Bethlehem to begin with because what they said is we saw his star when it rose they were looking for this star to rise as a special sign and when they saw it they set out for Jerusalem because where else would the king of the Jews be born but in a palace in Jerusalem. So after their interview with Herod, they get redirected to Bethlehem. Uh, Matthew writes, and after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold frankincense and myrrh so again it appears they saw this special star when it rose the first time but but now after they went to Jerusalem it took on some sort of supernatural properties that it actually moved and seemed to be located over a particular house and I have no idea how that happened except God um, 
and, and it likely wasn't as stable. Right? The, the Greek words that are used for Jesus here as a child, which would be older than a baby. There's a separate word for baby. So he was likely a toddler, maybe two years old. And the house where the wise men found him was not a palace. Right? They clearly went expecting that. They went to the palace. But then the star guides them, honestly, to this peasant's, peasant's home. We know from the sacrifice that Mary and Joseph offered at the dedication of Jesus that they were not well-to-do. They were poor. Um, and so they went into this, this poor house and found this little baby. But these men of faith recognized, this as, recognized Jesus as God's son, as the Messiah coming, even though it wasn't what they expected. And these guys were used to hanging out in the king's courts and, and living well bowed down on a dirt floor and humbled themselves before a toddler to worship him because they recognized by faith that this was almighty God invading the earth coming to save us you know they it was an act of worship to God himself on their part and then God gave them a message in a dream not to go back to Herod they took off for home uh, heading east and that's the last we hear from them. So we don't know for sure if they were good soil or not, but I think the evidence is that they were. Jesus said, as for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word. They received the written word that they saw in Scripture, what they had from Daniel, and understands it. They, they understood what the pieces meant. They put the pieces together. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. They'd clearly been studying God's word enough to understand the signs. They maybe didn't know how it all fit together, but they knew what the signs were. And by faith, they embraced the truth. And then they acted on that knowledge. They, they went to worship the king who'd been sent from heaven. And things weren't exactly the way they expected they really had little outward evidence to believe that this peasant child was a heavenly king, but by faith they fell down and worshipped him, which is what Hebrews describes as faith. The writer of Hebrews says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And without faith it is impossible to please him. Forever would draw near to God, must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. What better description... Of the wise men than that. They, what they saw with their eyes didn't match what they expected, but through the eyes of faith they saw what was true, and they diligently sought, sought after God. So again, we don't know for certain that their faith yielded fruit, but the fact that they worshipped, that they humbled themselves, that they made personal sacrifices, I think it's reasonable to conclude these guys were good soil. So that's a good soil. On the flip side, we have King Herod. Kind of similar circumstances. I mean, he actually was a king, uh, used to the good life. But he's the first of the no-shows. And I, I put him in the, the thorny soil, the thorn-infested soil. Jesus said, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. He heard it when the wise men showed up. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So, he was a king, probably a puppet king. I mean, definitely a public puppet king. He was uh, under the influence of Rome. Um, 
like the wise men, he was a Gentile. He was an Edomian. He was not a Jew. He's actually a pretty well-known historical figure. So like we heard from Alistair Begg, this helps to anchor the story of Christmas in reality, in history. Um, he was actually a good friend of uh, Mark Anthony. He, Mark Anthony was actually Herod's kind of patron that got him initially to power. Uh, if you remember, Mark Anthony was the friend of Julius Caesar, who gave his funeral address after Caesar was killed in the Senate. That Mark Anthony, the Mark Anthony who hung out with Cleopatra. And Cleopatra was one of Herod's biggest thorns in the flesh because he wanted to schmooze with Mark Anthony, but Cleopatra kept taking his territory, all, all the good pieces of his territory, and annexing it onto her own. Um, so there was kind of this conflict. And then when Caesar Augustus rose to power, Mark Anthony was out of favor, and so Herod had to curry up to um, Caesar Augustus. Herod was an amazing builder, and, and a number of his projects are actually still standing today. He, he rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, and, and the Wailing Wall, that, that was built by Herod. Um, he built a theater, an amphitheater, the Fortress Antonio, which was named after Mark Anthony. Um, he also built Masada, which is pictured here, which is this incredible fortress up on, on a peak that a handful of zealots were able to keep the Roman 10th Legion at bay for over a year. Living up there, the, the Legion actually had to build a dirt ramp up the side of it to, to be able to, to invade and conquer. Um, so Herod had these incredible accomplishments, but he was also very ambitious, very presumptuous, very opportunistic, and above all, he was cruel. Uh, when he first came to power, the, the Jewish leaders at the time actually favored his rival, Antigonus. Um, and so he wanted to be sure he had his, their support. So what he did was he randomly executed 49 of them took their property to pay the tribute to, to Rome, and after that, the other ones were too afraid to act up. So that's how he kind of squashed them. Um, he later made a trip to Rome after Mark Anthony was falling out of favor to, to win the favor of Augustus, so he traveled to Rome, and he was a little bit concerned about some of his rivals causing an uprising in his absence, so he executed all of them. Um, he was concerned about his favorite wife maybe being unfaithful, so he killed her. And then when her two sons, uh, by him, uh, were angry at him for killing their mother, he killed them too. Um, and then he had another son who was the, the crown prince who was rising to power, and he was concerned about him, so he executed him. I mean, this guy was just, just nasty. In fact, in his will, shortly before he died, he modified it so that when he died, random leaders and, and public favored public officials around Israel, around Jerusalem, would be executed because he wanted to be sure that people wept when he died. Um, fortunately, his army did not follow through on, on those uh, rules after, or those requests after he was dead. But, but that's just the kind of guy he was. Um, so it's easy to understand why Matthew says uh, that when the wise men showed up asking about this new king, and it says, when Herod heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. All Jerusalem was worried about what this guy would do, knowing that he had a rival. But I also see God's incredible mercy and grace to Herod. And God made sure that he knew about the gracious gift of the Messiah. As a kid, I always thought 
the wise men messed up. If they had just followed that star, it would have led them to Bethlehem. They never would have gotten Herod wound up. These kids wouldn't have had to die. It was all the wise men's fault for not listening to God. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think God deliberately led the wise men to Herod so that Herod would have no excuse, so that he would know that the heavenly king had come. And when I look at Herod, to his credit, he actually believed the wise men. He believed what they had to say, and he acted on that belief. Kind of as Jesus described the, the thorny soil, Herod heard the word, and he accepted it as true. If you read the story of the, the rocky soil, it says that those are people who received the message with joy. But it doesn't say that the thorny soil received the message with joy. They just heard the message. And he had faith to believe what the wise men said and to act on that belief. But his action showed that he was more concerned about the cares of the world and about the deceitfulness of riches. He was more concerned about protecting his royal position and his wealth and his power at all costs, even if it meant killing the king who had been sent from heaven. And I really believe Herod knowingly did that, that he set out to kill the Messiah to save his own personal kingdom. First he tried deception, telling the wise men, hey, go find the kid and I'll come worship him. And then when that didn't work, he just resorted to killing all the two-year-olds and under in that area. That story horrifies us, but Herod's response is actually more logical than most people. There can only be one king. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And to Herod's credit, he realized there could only be one king. And he realized that this heavenly king was a threat to his kingdom. And he wasn't prepared to surrender his kingdom. So he did everything in his power to destroy the threat. He literally fought to the death, but the death was his own. It was an eternal death. He clung to those weeds and those thorns and they choked the seed of life that was offered to him, that he received. Herod had a literal kingdom that he thought was threatened, even though in fact it wasn't. I mean, Jesus wasn't seeking an earthly kingdom. But honestly, every one of us is faced with that same conflict. Who will we acknowledge as king? Who is Lord in our lives? Will we follow Jesus? Will we allow him to call our shots, call the shots and direct the steps? Or are we going to insist on doing our things our own way and pursue our own interests? We may not think of that in terms of Jesus as being king, but any of the areas where we struggle to obey him, giving him what he wants, it's really what that struggle is. There are things other than Jesus that are dictating the decisions and actions in our lives. And most people just conveniently ignore his call to be Lord. To his credit, Herod knew he couldn't ignore this king of heaven. Unfortunately for him, he loved things that could never save him, and he stumbled over the stone that the builders rejected. So that's the thorny soil. To back to our list of visitors and no-shows, we have the shepherds, who were likely the first visitors on Christmas Day. Luke tells us, 
And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field watching over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there were with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So why was the birth of Jesus announced to shepherds? I mean, God could have revealed himself to anybody. I mean, these guys were on the lower socioeconomic ladder, end of the ladder. They, they were isolated professionally. They spent a lot of time out in the field. They probably weren't nice people. I mean, this wasn't a sought-after profession. Um, you, know, you think of fishermen and lumberjacks today, people who spend a lot of time away from society, maybe farmers, I don't know. Um, but these, these shepherds probably weren't particularly reverent or refined in their lifestyle. So why should they be the first to hear? Why would God announce the birth to these guys? Was it just a matter of, hey, they, they're only ones awake in the middle of the night. You know, the baby was born in the middle of the night, so he told them. I don't think so. I mean, God was able to speak to people in dreams. He was able to wake people up at night. Um, he could have had the angel choir blast so that the whole town woke up if he wanted to. But he actually started out with a single angel going directly to the shepherds. It was only after that angel spoke to the shepherds that the choir appeared. So it's pretty clear God was targeting shepherds. Why? You know, and, it, and we, we could say, well, God was trying to emphasize the, the gospel, that the good news is for everybody, even the downcasts. Um, and, and, and I think that's certainly part of it. Um, but remember what the way John the Baptist introduced Jesus to his disciples? He said, Behold the Lamb of God. I think God reached out to shepherds because he was sending a lamb. There's this guy, Dr. James A. Scudder, who um, says that the message that the angels gave about this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger was a sign. And, and to be a sign, it had to be specific. They, they couldn't have afforded to have the shepherds running around to every little stable, knocking on the door of every house. Hey, do you, do you have some animals out there? Do you have a manger? So the fact that they said this baby would be wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger should have been a clear clue um, to the shepherds. And, and what he says is these signs pointed the shepherds to the tower of the flock. The tower of the flock was on the outskirts of Bethlehem and overlooked the fields in which the Levitical shepherds kept their flocks for the temple. When a sheep was about to give birth, it was taken to the tower. The newborn lambs were placed in a manger in a clean stone bed to be examined with swaddling cloths 
white linens, which, could be, which would be used to find any blemishes. Because the sacrifices had to be without spot or blemish, much care was taken to make sure that the lambs were clean and free from any infirmities. There was only one place in Bethlehem that had a manger and swaddling cloths, and that was the Tower of the Flock. The shepherds immediately recognized the sign as they were implements that they were familiar with, and they would have no problem finding the babe since they knew exactly where he was. How incredible is it that the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, was born in the exact, the exact place that the sacrificial lambs of the temple were born? I don't absolutely know if that's true, but I am convinced that the circumstances around Jesus' birth were marking him as the Lamb of God, as the Passover Lamb. You know, we raise sheep, and being something of a shepherd myself, I know when I have a ewe that's giving birth, I try to get her off separate, and I try to be there when, when the lamb is born. And if we have a white lamb, most of our flock is colored, but if we have a white lamb, if you don't get it cleaned off right away, the, the blood and meconium from birth will stain that fleece for months. It, it's really hard to get off. So I can easily imagine that these shepherds did, in fact, watch closely when a lamb destined for the temple sacrifice was born and then they they wanted to clean them up really fast so that they would be that spotless lamb um so how appropriate that the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world the one who'd be sacrificed on passover 33 years later that he would be received first by shepherds i mean it just it makes sense so so what kind of soil were the shepherds and we can debate that point because just like the wise men, we see them in the Christmas story and we never see them again. Um, but I wonder if they were shallow, rocky soil. And I'm going out on a limb here. But Jesus describes that soil as follows. As for what was sown on rocky soil, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a little while. And when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So the, the shepherds definitely received the word from the angels with joy. Um, they are excited. They run to Bethlehem. Um, they, they talk to lots of people about it. They're glorifying and praising God. They had had an amazing, exciting experience with God. But were they transformed? Did it bear any fruit? And again, we don't know. We never hear from them again but I wonder if there's significance in that. I mean, wouldn't you think that if these guys had really been transformed, at some point we would have seen them again in the story? Would, would they have been supporting the Messiah? Would they have been defending Jesus at his trial? I, I don't know. I mean, would, when they went back to the fields, did they, did they lose track of him? You know, the family shortly, or, or at some point later, you know, moved out. Did they think he got killed with the massacre of, of the infants? We don't know, um, but, but we never hear from them again. Isn't that what happens with many of us? That we rejoice greatly when we first hear the gospel, but as time goes on, we lose track of the Lord. It's harder and harder to spend time with him, harder and harder to, to pray and study his word. And there's no specific moment there where we turn away, but we just gradually drift away. Um, he, he isn't that significant to us anymore. 
and certainly not important enough for us to risk persecution by claiming to be his followers. He, for some of us, he, he isn't Lord of our lives, even though we had an exciting experience at some point. The same could be said about the wise men, and we never hear from them again either. But I think the investment that they made, them coming and worshiping, them pouring out ex sacrificially gifts, I, th I think we see evidence of faith there that I think they truly worshiped the king. So, lots of speculation in the sermon today, I'm afraid, but, but the truth still rings out. There are different kinds of soil and different responses to the Lord. So the final of the no-shows are the chief priests and the scribes, the most religious people of the time. And God did more to announce the coming of his kingdom to this group than anybody else. These are the guys on the roof of the house when the helicopter takes off saying, you know, God, I'm trusting you that you'll show me the way. Um, he revealed himself in multiple ways. You think about it. They had all the same scriptures and writings that the wise men responded to. All of them. They had the whole Bible. Many of them had memorized it. They knew the scripture. To make sure they didn't miss the connection, God had Herod call them in when the wise men came and made them quote the prophecy. I mean, they were the ones who said, it, it'll be in Bethlehem. Um, so they knew the scriptures. They didn't get to see the angels. They didn't have that miraculous sign. But Bethlehem is only seven miles from Jerusalem. I have to believe that the religious leaders got message that these shepherds had had some religious experience and angels had appeared. Um, you know, surely the rumors would have traveled seven miles to, to Jerusalem. On top of that, one of their own, Zechariah, who was a priest who was on duty in the temple, came out mute and said he'd seen an angel and you know that his son was going to go ahead of the coming Lord. Zechariah surely talked with his colleagues. They all knew the story. You would think those events would have made them sit up and take notice. But in spite of all that, when the wise men showed up asking about this king that was to be born, when they told him well, to be in Bethlehem, they couldn't be bothered to walk the seven miles to see if these stories had any merit. Their, their hard-heartedness is shocking to me. They look like that hard-packed soil of the path. But despite being religious leaders, despite being diligent students of the scripture, their heart was hard. Jesus says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what he has sown in his heart. And this is what was sown along the path. The scriptures, the events, these miracles, strange occurrences didn't impact the religious leaders at all. Their hearts weren't quickened. They didn't need more miracles to convince them. Think about when Jesus raised Lazarus. This is what John reports. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, that was raising Lazarus from the dead, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For if this man for this man performs many signs, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. 
nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So here you have from their own lips, this guy does all kinds of amazing signs. And their response is, we've got to get rid of this guy. We've got to kill him. Their value, what they valued was their religious exterior. They valued their honored position in the nation. They valued people saying, oh, Rabbi, you're so wise. Um, they liked being the religious experts. That allowed them to define what was righteous and to put themselves over here in the good boy camp and put everybody else over here in the bad boy camp by making up rules that nobody could keep but them. Um, they could make themselves out to be flawless and everybody else to be sinful rabble and, and that gave them prominence and power. They hated that Jesus made them look bad. And they couldn't see beyond their own self-focus to see the truth of who he was. And so their response to Jesus is actually the same as Herod's. They wanted to kill him. And in fact, they did. They succeeded in killing him. And notice the charges that they brought, that they used to condemn him. Luke says, Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. John says, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, sought to release Jesus. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. So the religious leaders claimed that Jesus was making himself out to be a king. Did he? When you think of people typically claiming to be king in our day, they make a big deal about themselves, maybe more ancient days, but they exalt themselves and make people bow down in their presence. You have to address them as your highness. Jesus never did that. He, he never demanded the worship that he deserved. He never demanded the best for him. In fact, he was poor and without a home and wandering. In fact, after he fed the 5,000, John reports when the people saw the sign that he had done you know, all this free food, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So Jesus talked a lot about the kingdom of God. He positioned himself as the Messiah. He used occasionally the term I am to refer to himself, identifying himself with God, but he never presented a credible threat to anybody as earthly authority. Instead of being high and exalted, he was meek and lowly. Look at what he said to James and John when they requested a position of prominence in the kingdom. They wanted to sit on his right and left. And he says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever is to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, even, even myself, even the great I Am, came not to serve, not to be served, excuse me, I always get that wrong, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the upside-down kingdom of God, where the greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all. And Jesus fulfilled that description perfectly. At the same time, I think there is something 
of true royalty in his humility that made him a credible threat. A threat to Herod, a threat to the religious leaders, a threat to Pilate, a threat to anyone who takes him seriously. Look at Jesus' interaction with Pilate in John. It says, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Jesus wasn't seeking to set up an earthly kingdom with land and wealth. He wasn't seeking to overthrow Herod or Caesar. Those earthly kingdoms are small fry. They're insignificant to him. He was after much higher stakes. He was after an eternal kingdom. He wants to be the Lord of people's hearts. He says, for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What truth is he talking about? He's talking about the truth that he is the king of glory, that he is God Almighty, the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, the one before whom even the heavenly beings fall down on their faces and cast their crowns before him. And he's the one who meekly and gently but firmly calls us to make him Lord. Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? I think Jesus is probing Pilate's heart in that. He's asking Pilate, does your heart recognize me as Lord? Pilate, will you bend the knee spiritually? Pilate, do you see the truth of who I am or are you just parroting what somebody else said? Pilate brushed him off and said, what is truth? He was refusing to acknowledge that there was an absolute truth. And the absolute truth is that Jesus is Lord. It doesn't matter whether we acknowledge him as Lord or not. He is. He doesn't need us to acknowledge him to make him Lord. It's the absolute truth. And it's that truth that caused Herod the Great to be threatened by a two-year-old. It's that truth that caused the religious leaders to condemn a humble, gentle, wandering rabbi, to condemn him to death. His undeniable lordship is a threat to my kingdom, to my little fiefdom. The truth is that I either need to bow the knee to this good, loving, gracious, self-sacrificing, but all-powerful and holy king, or perish eternally seeking my own impotent and broken little kingdom. So to wrap up, what are the take-homes for us from these Christmas visitors and no-shows? The first, I think, is that God graciously reveals himself and makes himself known even to undeserving people like 
King Herod, or to smelly social outcasts like the shepherds, to Gentile dogs like wise men. God is calling all men to himself. He graciously extends that message. The second to me is our hearts are hard. I mean, we can point to the hardness of the hearts of these various people. They didn't need another sign. We don't need another sign. We need God to take hold of us and open our eyes. The religious leaders, the scribes, were inundated with evidence that Jesus was the Messiah. They had prophets, they had kings and visitors pointing to the truth, they had miraculous signs before their very eyes, but it wasn't enough. Because no one comes to the Father unless he draws them, unless he opens our eyes. And finally, and most importantly, Jesus, the peasant baby laid in the manger, is the Passover lamb, the lamb of God whose blood is powerful enough to cover over my sin, to remove the stain of my sin. And he is the eternal king of glory before whom every knee will bow. And he's a threat to me, to the rebel kingdom that each of us has in our hearts. And basically, we have four different ways to respond to that. We can refuse to see the truth of his kingdom, of his claim, like the religious leaders did, the seed sown on the path. We can have an emotional experience and get all excited about it, but not allow it to change our hearts and our lives, not allow it to impact our kingdom, like maybe the shepherds shallow rocky soil or we can defend our pathetic little kingdom and refuse to allow this king to come in fight him to the death like Herod did and eventually the religious leaders did but all of those responses result in the same thing it results in death and fruitlessness or we can come as the wise men did come to worship him humble ourselves before the king of glory he requires our full surrender, but he's so good and loving and wise and just. And he offers us adoption as sons, co being co-heirs with Jesus. Why would we do anything else other than come and acknowledge his lordship? Remember what John the Baptist said to his disciples when they came to him, complaining that Jesus was baptizing more people than, they, than John was. He was crowding in on, on their turf, on their baptizing turf. And they were complaining to John, and John said, he must increase, but I must decrease. Let's make that our prayer for 2022, that we would decrease, that he would increase, that our kingdoms would decrease, that his, in, his kingdom would increase in us. Let's pray. God, you are the mighty king, the awesome, eternal, holy God. Uh, there is nothing on earth that holds a candle to you. Um, but, Lord, we try. We try to defend our own little pathetic kingdoms. God, forgive us. Lord, would you increase in our hearts? Would we decrease? Lord, may we surrender more and more of that territory that we cling to that's just ugly and give it over to you and your transforming power in our lives. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.